Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKinty. This episode was recorded on July 12th, 2021. My guest on the program today is poet, novelist, and essayist Sophie Strand. Sophie caught my attention with her essay, Monster Myths Are Mother Myths, which discusses the subjugation of the historical goddess through a devolution into the monsters of the patriarchal mythologies which have now come to dominate the planet. She has currently self-published a series of essays on Facebook and is in the final processes of publishing a full-length compilation of essays entitled The Flowering Wand. Sophie's work focuses on the organic nature of conscious awareness and often references fungi, composting, and mycelium to describe a unique path of knowledge that asks her reader to re-examine typical epistemologies characteristic of Western thought. She draws upon ancient mythologies and indigenous spirit paths to help describe a zeitgeist in contrast to the prevalent technocratic and transhumanist philosophies that dominate the modern corporate government narrative. Notably, her work represents a fluidity of mythological evolution that is a prerequisite to breaking the cycle of violence perpetuated by patriarchal and authoritarian systems across the globe. While many have been colonized into thinking that objectivity creates an immutable truth, Sophie asks us to take our power back by understanding that consciousness is ever-changing and no one story has precedence over another. In her view, Culture is created out of the compost heap of multiple imaginations rather than socially engineered by academics and implemented through the indoctrination of corporate government propaganda. In this way, mythology becomes liberated from the forces of patriarchy and given back to the people, the artists and the poets, to draw from the collective consciousness the spirit of a new age of understanding the world around us. Rather than objectivity and transcendence, this new mythology asks us to respect subjectivity and personal experience while understanding that all things are connected. The web of consciousness acts like the fungal mycelium to transfer individual experience into collective awareness. Mythology is allowed once again to evolve as our notions of truth are no longer set in stone. This conversation will explore these ideas and more. Stay tuned as Sophie and I will delve into the general concepts behind different mythologies and their effect on the cultures they produce. While we often hear conversations about the patriarchy in modern political discourse, there is little offered in the way of a deeper discussion about what patriarchy as a psychological archetype actually means. This discussion will not only define that term, but offer alternatives to dominant and oppressive models of cognition that have the potential to liberate humanity while reintegrating culture into a relationship with nature that provides harmony and balance. Find out more about the work of Sophie Strand by following her on Facebook or at Cosmogony on Instagram. As always, you can find out more about this podcast by looking up The Shift with Doug McKenty on your favorite social media site, or just check out Doug McKenty on Facebook. Please like, subscribe, and share this episode throughout your network as we rely on listeners like you to help spread the word. Sign up for the newsletter, subscribe for feature-length episodes, and find hours of free content from Doug McKenty Studios by going to www.theshiftnow.com on the web. I want to thank Sophie for taking the time to have this conversation, and thank you for helping to make The Shift. Hey, everybody, and welcome to this. This is the 86th episode of The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty. I'm joined today with uh, artist, writer, poet, Sophie Strand. Uh, and I am very excited to talk about uh, mythology today, actually. It seems to be one of the things that Sophie really um, focuses on in her work. And uh, I am looking forward to diving deep into this one. Many of you may know or may not know that this show is called The Shift because I 
personally have a, a real serious interest in figuring out how to shift away from uh, this uh, hierarchical uh, empire colonizing system that we're all sort of a part of right now, uh, this patriarchal system and moving towards something different that may or may not be called matriarchy. Um, we can talk about the language here in the interview, but uh, I wanted to have Sophie on to have these conversations and I'm excited to do that. So thanks for coming on, Sophie. You wanna tell my audience just a little bit about yourself? Thanks. Um, yeah, I'm a historical fiction writer, a poet, an essayist. Um, I live in the Hudson Valley on land that is stewarded, was stewarded by the Muncie Lenape people. But I always even feel like saying that is too anthropocentric. It's, you know, land that was stewarded by bluestone, by oak trees, by black bears, um, right. by, by the Acadian <laughs> mountains, by the glacial um, uh, moraine. So, you know, I live I live right at the confluence of the of the Rondout Creek and the Hudson River. So I live right where two um, bodies of water meet, which I like symbolically. Um, it's this kind of fusion of two different storylines. Cool. Why don't you tell people a little bit? Because uh, I was listening to one of the podcasts you've done recently about how you were raised and your parents. Because it seems like <laughs> the lifestyle that you were raised within gave you a really large view of spirituality and and uh, an understanding of uh, a real open-minded understanding of spiritualities from around the world. Yeah, so my dad is an ex-Buddhist monk. Um, he was the head monk at Dabusatsu in Zen Mount Mon Zen, um, the New York Zen Monastery. Um, and then he taught, after he left the monastery, he taught Zen for a long time and then worked, was the editor at Tricycle, which is um, a Zen magazine. Um, and my mom has always been very interested in spirituality and written about it extensively and researched it. And so I was, kind of, I was raised in a household where my parents were constantly creating interfaith groups, having rabbis and monks and theologians and philosophers and shamans over to the house for discourse. And, you know, I was like this little kid just kind of wandering in, um, nice. mostly, um, we just had a lot of books. We had thousands of books and religious texts and I was a voracious reader so I just kind of read so much religious and spiritual exegesis the actual primary text so that was kind of the compost heap that I was raised in um and so I actually saw both the um the merits of these different practices and the real dark side because my dad was also um really um interested in all of the sex abuse in Zen and in all of these hierarchical huh. religions. And uh -huh. he um, was trying to be really vocal about how these hierarchies aren't very nice to women, not aren't very nice to children. They're guru, even when they look like they're about purification and, and non-ego, they're about guru culture often. So he was, he really tried to unpack that in his work. So that was definitely a, um, a sensibility I was raised alongside. Yeah, cool. It gets so complicated when you get into learning about spirituality, and there is this dark side to it. Um, and exploring that part of it, I think, is really important to um, to understand how to how to go forward in a good way. I guess as you learn yeah. more about this stuff. Um, I so I was first attracted to your work with this essay that you produced called "Monster Myths Are Mother Myths." Mm -hmm. um, do you want to just? let the audience know what that essay was about. We can kind of get a little bit deep into the concepts that were in there. Yeah, sure. Um, I mean, that, that essay was kind of like a, the synthesis of eight years of work in other books I was writing where I was just like, I can't believe people don't see this. <laughs> um, right, right. I guess 
have to state it baldly, which is the transfership Neolithic to Paleolithic Bronze Age cultures. What you see are slowly as we become more sessile, as we create civilizations, as we start growing crops, um, and we see a movement away from non-hierarchical groups to partnership groups, then to dominator groups. Mm -hmm. And in that transition, um, we begin to demonize earth-based um, cultures and earth-based deities. Those deities are often seen as mothers, not necessarily in a gendered way, but in a generative way in that they produce life. And so the way in which these dominator cultures, you know, the Kurgan hordes who come down into Europe and um, down into Greece and um, kill all of the populations and reinterpret their myths, know that they have to keep these myths around because they're so popular. But what they do is they twist them. They turn these older matriarchal figures, these earth goddesses. And when I say goddess, I'm not even necessarily talking about a female. I'm talking about like a chthonic soil being. They turn them into monsters. They demonize them. So actually, when you're looking at Greek myths, you're looking at older um, pre-Olympic pantheon myths that have been updated. Mm -hmm. um, there's a great mythologist called Carl Kareni who really, really showed how, in particular, the Minotaur was changed from being this bull god called Asterion, which means star, who was, re who, who was really uh, revered, especially on Crete. And then, of course, that infiltrates all of the different bull cults that spread through um, the Mediterranean basin in Europe. But he gets demonized by the Greeks when they come in and um, kill off all the original Minoan cultures. Right. And even in uh, the patriarchal religions like Christianity, there's a lot of uh, reference to older myths. It's almost like it's a blend of a lot of different myths. Uh, yeah, totally syncretic. Mm -hmm. yeah. I think... You know, my theory behind it is actually that as the empire empires are building, they're using mythology. Um, to me, it was almost like the one of the first forms of psychological warfare, if you will, where they're twisting the myth uh, that used to be for the people, teaching the people how to live with nature, teaching the people uh, their their version of science, so a form of education into a form of of like indoctrination for the empire. Yeah, I totally agree. agree. Yeah. I totally agree. And I think I think one of the things this you really see this, especially with Christianity moving into Europe and with all of the pagan practices, you know, most right. European saints are just um, syncretic older pagan gods. You know, a great example is St. Christopher, who's actually like this theriomorphic dog creature who then becomes Christianized. Um, but yeah, they know they can't get rid of the, the folkloric animist cults. They know that if they try and squash them, they're not going to have the allegiance of the people. Mm -hmm. So what they have to do is they have, yeah, they have to create this kind of psychological warfare where they say, we're going to take your myth, we're going to twist it, you'll still have it, but it will be used to keep you quiet and docile. Yeah, it's interesting. I have a. I was going to tell you, I don't know if you're familiar with the work of Joe Atwill. He did a book called yeah. Caesar's Messiah. No, I'm not. Yeah. He actually fab he he posits that um, the Jewish historian Josephus just invented Christianity. Basically, that there was no actual historical Christ. It's a, it's a fascinating theory. I don't know if if how I know a lot about Josephus. I actually think Josephus is not a really good 
here's something really interesting. He writes two different histories and mm -hmm. one after he changes allegiance from the Jews to the Romans and he contradicts himself between the two histories. Right. So he's not a super reliable source. And I actually, I think we have overinflated his importance as a historian just because he's one of the only texts that comes down to us. Um, so I don't know if he invented Christianity. I think we can backform and say that he's important in our, um, are thinking about the origins of Christianity. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I realize it's not a very popular theory, but uh, nonetheless, I think it's interesting just to posit the notion that the Romans were looking for a kind of a unifying mythology that would function uh, to to um, sort of placate all of the different members of their empire, just in terms of oh, how yeah. patriarchy grows, you know? <laughs> but, but they're actually, that's one thing, is the Romans are late to the uptake. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they, they persecute the Christians for a long, long time. Sure. Um, and it takes a while for it to catch on. In fact, it, it, at first, so the Romans were very anti-Dionysus and and they actually outlawed the, um, the Dionysus. But the followers of Dionysus saw a direct, saw Jesus as on a direct continuum mythologically as playing with a lot of the same themes as Dionysus, so they realized they could graft their illegal <laughs> worship of Dionysus onto Jesus. And in fact, the Gospel of John is pretty much the Bacchae by Euripides, if you compare them side to side. Oh, that's an interesting theory. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Brian Murrescu kind of really maps it out in his book, The Immortality Key. I don't know if you've read it. Not yet, um, but yeah. It's interesting. Um, it's a, I, would say, <laughs> I would say it's an interesting compendium of research. Yeah. But yeah, the Romans are kind of late to Christianity, but they they really do control the narrative from there on out. Yeah. And they go back and they destroy all the texts that came up to that, you know, Elaine Pagels has really shown that there was a biodiversity of Christianities until um, orth the Orthodox Church became... Um, a solidified structure. And then they went back and declared all of these different practices heretical, killed off all of the Gnostic practitioners mm -hmm. and destroyed their texts. Yeah, I mean, it's a fascinating evolution in terms of how the empire or the patriarchy really solidifies this, this methodology of thinking. I guess, why don't we talk about some of the characteristics of, of this patriarchy in general or the dominator yeah. culture or, um, or um, you know, these kinds of the mythologies that, that have these kinds of tendencies on what the, what the functions of these mythologies then are in terms of, of setting up a, a patriarchal society. Hmm. Well, I think that a lot of these myths are used um, in order to try and control the fear of what is being repressed. And I think that the minute you start to repress something, you become afraid of it. Mm -hmm. So it's really interesting to read a lot of our dominant myths for, for their fear <laughs> and to look where the fear is. Um, right. Because where the fear is, is where the oppression is and, and where, where the history is really getting... Um, kind of thinly veiled. The monster myths is definitely my attempt to kind of problematize that. For example, like Taham Tiamat is this mother goddess from older um, Sumerian myths that gets adopted into the Enuma Elish, where she is 
create she she becomes a monster in it when she's really a mother goddess Mm -hmm. and then marduk comes and kills her and that same word is then um used in genesis as to hong for the deep which comes before god and comes before earth so and of course you know the torah is written after the babylonian exile so the jews would have picked up on that myth and picked up on that fear of this mother goddess who they both they recognize in their text as coming before god and before the world but are also afraid of it's the chaos it's the deep right i mean that's just the thing it's like um it seems like I'm, I'm trying to get my finger on exactly where I'd like to go with this because I think yeah. we're onto something really important, but it's hard to to put it into words. It's like the 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 patriarchal religions or the patriarchal mythologies are are making us afraid of the things that we don't understand. I guess um, the things that we're, we're repressing, but the the religions themselves will repress, you know, sexuality or apply guilt and shame as tools. I think for control. Um, I guess maybe you know what are what are the positive aspects of the goddess mythologies that were happening beforehand that were then and you know shunned by the the patriarchal mythologies as this evolution occurs. I kind of want to go back even further just because I feel like there are a lot of heroes of the divine feminine out there so they don't necessarily need me. Not that I'm not part of their contingency, sure. but well, they don't necessarily do need me. I want to go back to cave paintings where almost no human beings are represented. It's all animals. It's all nature. Right. Or go back to all of the art that comes down to us from Bronze Age Crete, where it's almost all um, chevrons, waves, moons, bulls, animals, epiphonic figures of a goddess, but mm-hmm. often not. Almost no human beings, no heroic individuals. So what I'm interested in is less goddess culture and more these artistic kinetic cultures where it's about intimate, dynamic, participatory relationship with the natural world, where the orientation is not human stories or on human gods or on human individualism. I'm not sure exactly what we would call those cultures. I sometimes call them paleolithic cultures. And I think that they don't, they're residual within the bronze age. They don't totally go away. Like I think Creed is a great example, at least in terms of archeological evidence of how that kind of actually held out until the last possible moment. You know, what's interesting to me, though, uh, Sophie, and I've had this revelation at one point is that even it's so easy to get caught up in the linearity of time, the way that that we're thinking about it. But there are cultures today right now that that are still indigenous and don't anthropomorphize in in these ways. So it's, you know, and you wouldn't call them goddess cultures. And I think that's a really good thing to know. You would call them people. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, and, and that's and that's another thing is you know when you look at all of these indigenous names, they call themselves the people, and then they call the water the water people, the fish people. Every everyone yeah. is a different kind of people. Um, it's just kind of a designation of beingness um, without any kind of hierarchical ordering. Yeah. So I'm much more interested in um, being a proponent of that than I am in goddess culture, which I do feel is a little fetishistic. It's like we have this beautiful, luscious woman who represents the totally. mother, which I, I mean, I am down for. We have demonized, denigrated, killed mothers for a long time, and mothers are not having a good time right now. But I also don't think that it helps us reorient our, narr- our narratives towards the more-than-human world. Yeah, I think you're onto something here. I mean, I think ditching the entire 
anthropomorphic tendency is actually yeah. where we want to go. We want to take it to this whole other level where we're thinking about things completely differently. And it's no longer like, because even in the process of anthropomorphizing, we are already putting humans on top of a hierarchy. We're already creating that hierarchical establishment that really doesn't, it only exists in our own minds, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, totally. I mean, it's, it's ex exactly what permeates like um, neuropsychology and neuroscientists um, discourse, which is like, we're always measuring other animals by our own idea of what intelligence is <laughs> yeah. um, without actually being able to prove that that kind of intelligence is in any way better than what other creatures do. Um, yeah. Yeah. One of the things that you were talking about, and I can't remember which essay it was, but you were talking about how we should be thinking about how we're all a part of, of everything. You use that term everything. And it just reminded me of this, uh, this Lakota phrase where they say, um, part of like, if you're, if you're entering into ceremony, you'll say mitake ase a lot, which means to all of my relations. And from mm -hmm. their perspective, that means like everything is your relative, not just other humans in your family or whatever, or even just other specific animals, but literally everything else in all of creation is a relative of yours. And um, it's, it's a different way of looking at things, but it's an important aspect of this shift, if you will, that, you know, it would be nice if humanity, I think, needs to make this shift if we want to learn how to um, live more symbiotically with the state of nature, if we want to be able to live in harmony. Uh, as opposed to this situation that we're finding our, ourselves in right now, I think by by participating in this dominator culture, we're clearly uh, doing a lot of environmental damage. Um, yeah, and that and that damage is also it's patchy. It's um, it's concentrated more in different places. There are whole groups of people who really don't do much damage, and it's always important. You know, I always say we're connected to everything, but we're, you know. Everything's connected to something, but not to everything. So you, by virtue of your relationship to something else, you're connected to everything. But you are also situated right. in a local, to local people, to the microbiome of the soil, to protecting your local forests, your mountains. And I think it's important that we both acknowledge like the patchy, heterogeneous nature of how responsibility is kind of um, uh, distributed. And mm -hmm. also our own very particular relationship to being culpable. I think we're all culpable, but not to the same degree. Sure. Yeah. And something else I think I read uh, in your work was talking about how rather than thinking about things on a world stage, um, it's important for us to do something in our community to like actually make the changes yeah. in our community, you know, plant a tree in your community or... <laughs> Don't yeah. just uh, don't think about things in too large of a concept because uh, then you're still, again, sort of participating in this hierarchy of thinking. Yeah, it's also to this kind of artificial homogenization of, of concern or care. You know, everyone has to care about the same things in the same way at the same time. And the most charismatic cause is going to get the most attention mm -hmm. when, you know, maybe the the thing that the, the microbes and the fungi in the patch of land that's about to be made into a hotel are not as charismatic, but definitely need your attention. Right. And I think that, you know, as someone who is very ill and has grown up with illness and things that have made me feel like an exile sometimes in my community or sometimes like I'm invisible, I would say that, you know, our responsibility is not to the most visible or charismatic um, 
event, but to the small, intimate relations we have in our everyday life. Those things that sometimes can get ignored because they're not quite as flashy. Right. Well, let's also, I mean, there's so much, uh, I hope I can kind of piece a lot of these other bigger picture ideas together so we can come up with a holistic conclusion at the end. But um, <laughs> I, I want to jump to this idea of, of art and art as mythology, because one of the things that I think you're approaching in your work, and it's something that I've thought about too, where in a lot of the patriarchal mythologies, I feel like, um, you know, they're set in stone. Like sometimes in the story is very literally set in stone, but certainly in the Bible, you've got like, this is the word of God. It's, it's not going to change. Um, and I, I think that one of the shifts that needs to happen is now, like, we can take responsibility for the creation of our own myths, right? <laughs> like, yeah, I mean, we need to compost mythology, which means you don't throw anything out, you throw everything in, and you use it to create something that is fertile. And, I mean, that's why I've been using mushrooms and fungi as a cognitive companion and thinking through myths, which is that... I think that myths get problematic when they get written down. And the movement from pictograms to <laughs> phonetic alphabetic language is it's a really big shift. Mm -hmm. Suddenly we we have abstracted language, our myths aren't oral. When myths are oral, they change, they adapt. Um, and I think about mushrooms that, you know, they're growing underground in a mycelium for tens of, you know, 10 years. They're not fruiting up and then they fruit up and then their mushroom is the exact po poem of a specific ecosystem, a specific distribution of minerals and soil and mm. dead wood matter. And, you know, maybe at a different time, a different version of that mushroom is going to pop up for a different kind of climactic situation from the same underground mycelium. But the mushroom represents a kind of adaptive underground mythology that can spring up in a way that is specifically tailored to a specific situation. And I think when you have oral mythology and oral scripture, you're constantly speaking it and updating it and shifting it in order to address changing concerns. And the scholar Karen Armstrong really makes a very compelling argument for the fact that scripture is embodied, it's performative until about the time of Jesus. And that's mm -hmm. when it gets really ossified, when things get written down and you think, you know, you think that the the two years of a very young rabbi's teachings are going to be applicable for millions of different ecosystems and peoples over 2,000 years. That seems pretty silly to me. Right. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think this is one of the fundamental differences between these two kinds of consciousness, if you will, and, you know, patriarchal, matri matriarchal, or however we want to create that division, um, is that one is is setting a standard, a, a high standard that, that it believe like a truth that everyone needs to follow, uh, as opposed to this idea that truth kind of evolves with the situation, uh, and should be constantly flexible and, and, uh, and m moving around as the, um, as the situation changes, you know, as the culture evolves. So, um, that is a pretty big concept. I think it's hard for people to even get around that. So many people who are raised in this culture, um, you know, I mean, right now, I guess what I would call the dominant mythology would be this science, you know, science knows the truth and it's all set in stone. <laughs> it's <laughs> even, so silly too, because it's so anti-scientific. It's so scientific, it's scientific, not scientific. And right. I think a lot of people 
Rupert Sheldrake writes so well in his book, Science Set Free. He says, um, the people who most believe in quote unquote science are the people who know the, the least about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. The real scientific mode is to be curious, to constantly be investigating, to be living the question, not to ever take something as a given. Yeah, it's so fascinating, actually, that uh, to be a real scientist, I think, requires this huge level of humility. Uh, yeah. And yet so many people, I mean, I consider it, and I've called it scientism, is, yeah. the, is the term that I've heard. But um, it's basically almost like a new patriarchal religion with the same concept that, like, the truth is oh, set in stone. Oh, it gets drafted on. Yeah. The no, consensus I mean, my... of experts has determined the, the ultimate truth, and it's never going to change, you know? I think people aren't even aware that the same theological binary of um, spirit and body gets grafted onto um, mind and matter. Right. <laughs> like, you know, it's just, you know, you can change the terminology, but, you know, it's still theology. Um, yeah. And, oh, God, I was just reading Cosmopolitics by Isabel Stengers, who really talks about the whole Lagrangian effect, about this whole way of homogenizing systems with equations, and how people don't even realize that there is so much abstraction that goes into these things that we think are physical realities. Mm. They are so far from what we even would call real. <laughs> Well, right. I mean, they don't really know what a molecule looks like, you know. <laughs> no, it, 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 it's a factish. You know, it's it's mm -hmm. it's a reciprocal capture. You know, it's invented by the scientists. They find it, and then it creates them in their in its own image. Right. Um, suddenly, they they have to be constantly affirming the belief in it. So I'm not saying that the atom or the molecule, these things don't exist, but I'm saying that they are also creative objects. Um, yeah, I actually think it's kind of fascinating to apply the language or the understanding of mythology to the the modern science because this, yeah. typically these these people think they've somehow transcended religion when i look at it and it's like this has got all the qualities of every religion i've ever looked at you know it's, yeah and it's such it's a really shame because similar. i do think there there is i think science does really have and science as an ecology of practices not as one kind of universal whole um, and yeah. in an ecology of practices are constantly checking each other interrogating each other bringing you know an interdisciplinary kind of compost heap um right i think it has the ability actually to create spiritual understanding and i i think that the kind of artificial um break between spirituality and science hasn't been great because it is then it becomes the becomes religion when you take spirituality out of science it just becomes religion yeah yeah it seems like quantum mechanics is starting to kind of cross that that bridge a little bit where you know spirituality spiritual people can understand science and and vice versa through quantum mechanics but it doesn't seem to be stopping a lot of the materialists from from <laughs> uh clinging to i mean it almost feels like you know the old newtonian science is what people cling to as this belief system even after science has disproven a lot of that it's funny because i think it does have these patriarchal well, characteristics maybe that they're used to or they're comfortable with <laughs> 
Well, here's the really interesting thing. Science, as it is functioning right now, culturally, is functioning a lot like the Catholic Church right before Protestantism. And what yeah. it does is it says that the elite get access to the scientific articles and the jargon, and everything is written with such a high level of complexity and terminology that people can't access it. Yeah. So then they get to translate the scripture and tell you what they want you to believe rather than letting you access science and really interact with it. You know, science used to be something that you could practice as a hobby. It, it's only very recently it became something you had to get a degree for to do. Um, and as it, as it stands now, it really reminds me of Catholicism right before Lollardy, right before the Protestant Reformation and the iconoclasm that happened um, in Europe. So it, it will be interesting to see what happens, I think, in the next 10 years with, quote unquote, the kind of like the cult of science as opposed to like actual scientific inquiry. Right. Yeah, it's that's so accurate to me what you said about um, where the elite have access. I mean, it's isn't this even what uh, to me what I would say is a is a fundamental characteristic of a, of a patriarchal religion as opposed to like a spirituality, where in the patriarchal religion that's set up with the hierarchy, the hierarchy tells you that only you have to go through them to get to the godhead or whatever. You, you know, as opposed the to hierophant, yeah. And as opposed to the spirit path, which is teaching you how to have direct access. Yeah. No, I mean, it's so funny. So that kind of reminds me of like, so there's Orthodox Christianity, which says that you have to have some kind of interpreter. You can't read it all. You can't read Latin. So they've got to translate right. it for you. And then you have like Gnosticism, which is all about everyone has their own direct path. So, you know, something I've been thinking about a lot is how do we reinvigorate science? How do we not demonize but how do we like approach it from the nos lens where everyone gets to participate where everyone gets to come into it from a state of wonder and awe but also yeah. inquiry and curiosity not necessarily believing everything that they're given yeah it's an interesting perspective i mean the thing that i that concerns me i guess about um what you were describing that that science has kind of become now kind of like the 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 Catholic Church, there's this element of hubris within it, again, that, that believes that it has discovered some kind of transcendental truth. <laughs> and then people cling to this and they, oh, I believe that because the science tells me, or, you know, Dr. Fauci says, right, the, the people at the, at the high end of the scientific hierarchy have said this. So it must be true. It must be the truth. Um, instead of remaining open-minded and this hubris, right? Just like every Greek tragedy that was ever written. <laughs> I mean, I think this is the, clearly to my mind is going to result in catastrophe. <laughs> I mean, and we're looking, we're living that catastrophe right now, I think, unless people can really learn how to shift their belief in science so that it's, it doesn't contain this like patriarchal aspect to it where this transcendental truth, but instead is more like a spirit path, more like, you know, it's a, it's a form of inquiry, but we have to remain open-minded and we have to remain humble to the fact that we don't know everything that's going on in the world. And then it can, you know, it's a really functional tool, right? I mean, it does have but it's, a it's purpose. A tool. It's, a, it's a way of asking questions. It's not an axiomatic um, right. <laughs> program. Yeah. Um, 
I think whenever we think something is set in stone, we have to look back a hundred years and say like, okay, well, everything they discovered has been disproven. So we should have a little humility right now with what we're holding. Yeah, I know. Um, (laughs) I mean, people always think that they're at the pinnacle, like that's it. Like, I mean, and that's the thing about evolution too, that people don't understand. It's like, we think that we, because we're the snapshot human being that we're not in process, but we're in process. We're still evolving. Everything is still evolving Yeah, and evolving. Not as like towards progress towards, change you know we're all changing it's so interesting again i mean this this linear concept of time but it's all intertwined with this idea of progress i think these are all characteristics of of patriarchy or dominator culture or you know whatever term you want to want to use for it but it's it's such a habit to be in i mean the idea that that we're progressing and we're moving forward it's almost like how do you break free from that and what is the other you know uh, the opposing metaphysic, I love your metaphor of composting, because this actually kind of like, it makes a lot of sense. It makes it make sense that there's another way of viewing how things can evolve that doesn't have to be so linear, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think that it's, for me, it's always, so this is a way, this is a bowl to hold this in. It's not necessarily true, but I see it as the movement from lunar cyclical cultures to solar cultures, mm-hmm. which is like the lunar cycle is you're every month, every 28 days, you're going to change. You go, you know, you're always both, you're never, you're always becoming, you're never solid. Um, and then you're returned again to the same spot. It's very spiralic. Um, and then solar culture is very, you know, it's that kind of like linear ray that's going straight into you know, that photon that's totally. direct into your eye. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's the arrow of time. Um, but I, you know, I don't want to totally demonize the sun. I love the sun, but right. I do think that, that these these lunar cultures definitely have a better cultures that, you know, it's it's interesting that you know the the types of Judaism that come before the destruction of the second temple, right? You know, contiguously with Jesus, um, have lunar cycles, and they're much more lunar. You know, and they're still a patriarchal culture, but they're still moving in a, a cyclical way they still Mm -hmm. viewed time as cyclical so linear culture in general i think is relatively recent it's interesting to think of it as kind of happening post second temple period palestine for sure yeah and it's also interesting to think about because i i don't ever want to come out as being sort of anti-christian or anti-jewish or whatever you know these these quote-unquote patriarchal religions it's like to me if if your spirituality is working for you then more power to you and then there's also as you say so many aspects of of all of these different i mean there's gnostic christianity that has totally different belief systems just as there's these older forms of judaism that are very lunar based um so you know there's a lot of wisdom in in every tradition and it's kind of all about how you put it together and it may even be more recent you know it might just be in the last hundred years you 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 know now you're having me thinking about it that that even we've become more and more and more um i guess you know, technologically scientismist oriented that a lot of these, the more patriarchal aspects of these mythologies are even coming out more and more because the whole culture is just seems like it wants to push so hard in this direction right now, which I mean, I perceive again, like we've got to make a a shift. There's got to be more of an understanding of how to think about things in terms of, of cyclical patterns. Um, and non-hierarchical systems, because, I mean, we're clearly headed off a cliff here uh, ecologically if we don't actually learn how to live more symbiotically with with the planet, right? 
Um, yeah. And yeah. I, I guess I view things a lot in terms of yin yang theory where, you know, that we're existing in an, a seriously excess yang culture and that's going to transmute back into the yin. <laughs> I'm, that's what I'm hoping. That's what I'm going with. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think a lot about emergent systems and swarms. Mm -hmm. um, and I think a lot about, I've been researching um, locusts and crickets recently, how, you know, this transition of desert crickets to locusts and how, <laughs> you know, science, science is really good at describing like murmurations and starlings and other collective animal behavior, but there's something about locusts that's really hard to um, map Fine. and <laughs> understand. Yeah, yeah. And there's this, there's this way that, you know, there are certain ecological conditions like drought and then rain that create a boom in their populations and usually they're very solitary figures but then there's this moment where they're i think it's like 0.13 centimeters away from each other and they start hitting each other's back legs and it's like i think three stimulations brings them into synchrony and so you, at first you have hmm. this chaos this entropic moment where they're just a lot of crickets and then they start going through a physiological change they actually change into a different kind of um, insect, which is the, the locust. They get bigger, they change color, and they begin to organize. But they also organize in a way that's not, that doesn't conform to our anthropocentric ideas of what swarms are supposed to do. Like, they have like a leading army and then it like diffuses behind it, it trails, it's always on the edge of disorder. And I was thinking that, you know, the beings that I think I'm going to pray to and think with are locusts. Like, we need enough people who are hitting each other's um, back legs right. with these kind of de-anthropomorphized points of view with these non-hierarchical kind of anarchic ideas that they stimulate collective behavior that can't be understood by patriarchy's systematic measurements. <laughs> totally. So it can't be controlled because it's too chaotic. Yeah. I, a lot of things came up for me with that one. I mean, um, I think that, that the patriarchal systems or the dominator systems, I mean, they're called dominator systems because there is a control group. I mean, there's a, there's a, a, at the top of the hierarchy that controls the rest of the system. And they think that their logic or their intelligence, or they have access to the special knowledge uh, or whatever it is that justifies their control. And it's this controlling behavior. Um, and a lot of the, and then, you know, the way I actually view it, I've been using psychology a lot lately. Yeah. Um, is a kind of Stockholm syndrome happens to the vast majority of people on the bottom where they're actually oppressed, you know, <laughs> they're oh, being yeah. oppressed, but they have learned to identify with their oppressor and they're, they'll actually, um, you know, help to perpetuate the patriarchal system, uh, even yeah. though they're being oppressed by it at the same time. That seems super accurate. I mean, like, ask people about, like, how much joy they actually experience, you know, right? <laughs> show them an alternative. Um, right. I don't think people are having a very good time right now. Um, you know, we look at suicide <laughs> rates, we look at mental illness, we like at physical health, you know, not, people are not having a yeah. good time inside this culture. Stress um, levels are really and I think, high. You know, when people demonize men as this kind of universalized whole, I want to say, I don't think men are having a super good time either. I don't think, you know, <laughs> <laughs> right. I don't think women are having a good time. I don't think men are having a good time. I think a very small group of people are having a very selective kind of hedonistic <laughs> experience. Yeah, that's what it seems like. And it's amazing that the rest of us are allowing them to do that. You know, I mean, think about it. That's where it, to me, it comes down to like, 
literally thousands of years of this psychological warfare that is this patriarchal mythology, you know, because it's the yeah. only way they can actually control the mass of the population to thinking that participating in this makes any kind of sense whatsoever. <laughs> you know, yeah. one thing that I want to want to bring up with you is um, because this is an interesting dichotomy that's been coming up for me lately. And it's kind of like you're talking about the like the the concept of the swarm, but it's still yeah. important that the individual units in the swarm have the freedom to make the choice, right? And and then and then well, it develops I, I, into a self organized system. Yeah, let's delve into it. It's I know it's complicated. <laughs> I, I think I think there's this idea that there are free agents, and it, you know it's actually it, it has a lot to do with um, experimental systems rather than actual chaotic natural systems. Mm -hmm. And the truth is that we all have the free will to make a decision, but you know we have more bacterial cells in our body than human cells. Like you know the concept of individuality and individual decision making gets really problematized when we actually start to think at the nested levels of being that even make up a self. Totally. Um, you know, a bacteria has a virus inside of it, has a fungus inside of it, you know, we, right. so yeah, so all of those individual units are making a decision, but they're also, you know, you think of bees in a hive that are all within the pheromonal soup of the queen. So they're all making decisions that feel individual, but are guided by this kind of perfumed sovereignty. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. and, and is the queen the the dominator or is the hive a being in and of itself you know that's the real question yeah it is fascinating i mean again you know i like to apply yin yang theory to these okay. ideas because it's you you can constantly sort of bounce back and forth i think it's it's a, a miasma of energetic forces at work and um i mean it's really difficult to put your finger on any one thing um wait will you will you explain a little i don't know that much about yin and yang i mean i know okay. about them simplistically as a concept that's like culturally diffused mm -hmm. um but it would be great to hear about what exactly they mean to you well it's interesting yeah i've done i mean i've done tai chi for a, for quite a while so i know um a fair amount about about the idea and basically it um i mean the 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 basics of it is that if you've got yin and yang and they're sort of the opposites um, but as one, as the energy pushes towards one, it's going to naturally then transmute into the other one. So if something becomes more and more young, it will eventually hit a peak and then it will have to become yin. And if something becomes more and more yin, then at some point it's going to hit a bottom and it's going to have to start becoming more young. Um, and it's just basically... I mean, you can go from there um, more and more into detail about the symbol itself. Um, there's a lot of information packed into that, but that's kind of the basics of it. And um, I guess I love I think that. I mean, I think it's. I think that's a very wise um, concept to to live with. Also, just psychologically in your life, you know, every high is. Um, extraordinarily close to the valley um and right. in fact the higher you get the closer you get to that ultimate pit <laughs> you know you're always kind of vacillating between those two yeah experiences and so the chinese then have that the in traditional chinese medicines like finding that middle way is what's healthy yeah. you know if you can mm -hmm. stay kind of between instead of instead of bouncing back and forth from the extremes all the time um yeah. but 
I like it too because it it incorporates the the dialectic, the concept of the dialectic, but it puts it inside of a circle and it has more of the a cyclical pattern to it as opposed yeah. to like I get frustrated with the um the materialist dialectic in this culture and the you know the Hegelian thinking that goes on especially in politics and the very linear historiosity that people have as a part of all of that and it's like and and then and then you know again people will say well dialectical thinking is you know it's healthy using logic a synthesis and antithesis and coming up with a thesis and it's like well yeah but you can use yin yang theory you know and you have a healthy version of that that um, incorporates a lot of cyclical concepts and it doesn't have to be so this linear, you know, Hegelian thing uh, that I think traps us into, again, the, the more patriarchal, more linear thinking. Yeah, I mean, I think whenever we begin to prize one narrative, one way, one epistemology over another, um, we get stuck. You know, it has to be a biodiversity. We have to be constantly trying on different modes of consciousness, yeah. different modes of being. Yeah. Um, and especially non-human consciousness. Um, I, I think that that's something that indigenous cultures do a lot. They're always trying to be other animals and plants and to understand them. Um, and I think that's something we do not actually practice at all. So we're, you know, we try and Heideggerian thinking, Hegelian thinking, you know, different kinds of like, you know, that, that's why a lot of new age spirituality kind of, um, prickles with me is, uh -huh. is that there's a lot of abstract concepts, but nothing has a root system. Nothing is actually helping you to be more empathic and in relationship with your environment. I, uh, before we wrap this up, I want to spend some time with your idea about, um, uh, this notion of, of, um, Dionysus and the, the flower wand. Is that, the flowering wand, yeah. The flowering wand, because I really appreciate it. I mean, a lot of people are getting down on masculinity and toxic mas masculinity and this and that. And, and you know, your approach to actually going like, look, I mean, you know, we've got to look at what's been going on and, and we've got to discover a, a healthy male and help heal the masculinity. Um, and this perspective and utilizing Dionysus as the mythological character, I just think was, was a, a really nice way to approach it. So do you want to... Um, you yeah, want to I describe mean, that concept for people? Yeah. Sure. I mean, this is a book that I'm coming out with, and it definitely takes a lot of different figures. It, it attempts to start a conversation and to represent, to offer invitations into different mythologies, not just one monomyth. Mm -hmm. And, um, but Dionysus was definitely the inspiration for the project, which is he definitely seems to be this kind of anti-patriarchal version of masculinity. Yeah. That he can be feminine. He is the only Greek god that doesn't commit rape. <laughs> um, you know, right. the women around him can be really strong and powerful, and he gets to be kind of playful and amorphous. You know, he's he predates Greek mythology. He shows up in Linear B, the earliest version of Greek on Crete. But he was always represented as a fresh god, freshly adapted to a city or a situation. He's always called the stranger, like the new one. Um, so for me, he really, he represented that cyclical time as opposed to linear time, that kind of mutability of a lunar, lunar figure, a lunar hero. Mm -hmm. um, and he's also very attached to fermentation and to plant life and to kind of the inert. He, what people don't understand is that Rome was very scared of him. Because he was, um, he was oftentimes the guiding um, deity behind revolt. Spartacus was a follower of Dionysus. This woman, Pecula Anya from Compa um, Campania, um, 
I do not know if I pronounced that correctly, <laughs> um, was um, started a huge revolt against the empire. And that was actually when they outlawed the um, reverence of Dionysus. So there was a smear campaign to make him into a god of wine, but he was really, Lieber was one of his other names, which is the root of liberation and freedom. Um, he was a god of freedom and of dancing and of um, kind of anti- hierarchical behavior. I call him the god of like swarms of collective behavior because he would show up in a city and all of a sudden everyone would start behaving in different ways. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's just so important to, to kind of um, recognize that there is a healthy masculinity out there and it was a part of, of our mythology pre uh, the, the, these, these patriarchal hierarchies. Um, Yeah. There were a lot of different modes of them. And and it wasn't just one. There were many different kinds. I mean, I go back and reinterpret Joseph of Egypt from Genesis and say, this figure has been co-opted by a a text that is written well after he may have actually lived. But actually, let's look at it. What does it mean to be a man who dreams of plants and makes prophecies from his dreams? (laughs) Right. Yeah, I mean, this is actually a good point, co-opted. I mean, this kind of goes back to our, our earlier point about how patriarchal mythologies even evolved in the first place. And there was this co-opting of the of the previous mythology as you slowly evolve into these more hierarchical cultures. Um, and it's almost kind of interesting, like, I guess we could look at it the same way. We could co-opt some of the patriarchal culture, you know, mythologies and, and push them <laughs> back in the other direction. Um, yeah, that's what I mean. What I'm always trying to do is to massage these things rather than try and reach some kind of fictional purity of origin. Like, I'm, I'm not trying to um, uncover the truth. I'm trying to create a new truth. Yeah. So, yeah, it's how can we how can we re-co-opt them? Yeah, right. Interesting. Yeah. Fascinating. Yeah. And I and I love the idea that Dionysus uh, becomes the the new sort of the new version of masculinity. Um, I guess going back to the Nietzschean stuff, like clearly we've become too Apollinean, um, too yeah. rules based, too um, too too much of a belief that that. I, I think a lot um, about these terms techne and bios that were the ancient Greek terms for kind of, you know, like logic and how things are constructed, but that there's the technical way, the technical version, which we've come to really worship in this culture, in this day and age, as we're even seem to be moving towards this whole transhumanist movement, actually. I mean, people are trying to transcend their own bodies. Um, by oh, building I know. <laughs> machines. Yeah. <laughs> Not even going to touch that, but yeah. And then the idea of, of BIOS, where you've got organic, um, you know, uh, organic systems that evolve, that function at this high level, um, but they're not, they're not created, you know, they're not controlled. It's not a robot. It's not a machine. It's an, it's an organic. Um, and that's where Dionysus comes in and being able to worship that organic part of ourselves and that you know, we can still have logic and reason, but if it's this, if it's this bios, if it's rooted, if it's composted, right? Yeah. <laughs> if there's not this hubris attached to it, um, then it's just a, another healthy tool. It's another way of, of living our life. So. Yeah. Yeah. And Orpheus too. I mean, Orpheus is a really interesting figure as well. He, you know, he, he represents a collective behavior rather than a singular figure. You know, people took on the mantle of Orpheus, just like people took on the mantle of Homer in order to write Orphic hymns. And I also think that's an interesting concept right now is, you know, especially with extinction and with, 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 um, ecocide is 
what are you going to provide a mouth for? Um, what are you going to be the song of? Um, so that's something personally I think about a lot. Well, very cool, Sophie. Do you, <laughs> want, you want to let people know um, what you're coming out with here in the future? Because you haven't actually published uh, a full-length book yet, have you? Or you just have a bunch of stuff on the burner? <laughs> um, well, I've been a ghostwriter, so I've published a lot of other people's books. Oh, got it. <laughs> um, got none it. of which I can share. Right. Um, but yeah, my first actual book of essays is coming out with Inner Traditions, I think probably mid-2022. And it's called The Flowering Wand. Um, lunar Kings, Rhizomatic Harpists, Lichenized Lovers, and Transspecies Magicians Heal the Masculine. <laughs> nice. So that's yeah. my very maximalist title for a book about using ecology, poetry, philosophy, to, and science to rewild these older stories of the masculine. But um, I also have two other books that are finished that I'm attempting to sell right now. Um, one on deep ecology and healing, which is definitely more memoir, series of essays. Um, which I've been posting some of them online right now. And then a finished book, which is, was my original project, um, but it has been a very tricky project to sell. And I'm hoping that the kind uh -huh. of um, cultural flavor will change to suit it. Is It's an ecological, historical fiction reimagining of the Gospels. Okay, cool. That's the, that's the long novel that you've been yeah. working on? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, I'll be looking forward to seeing all of that. Is there any place that um, I should point people to where they can find your work? Sure, yeah. Um, I have a website that's being made. But as of right now, you can find me on Facebook where you can follow me because I have too many friends I can't accept anymore um, at Sophie Strand. Or you can follow me on Instagram at Cosmogony, which is spelled in an atypical way to represent a female-created personal creation. Um, C-O-S-M-O-G-Y-N-Y. -Y. So, nice. Yeah. I like it. Thank you so much. Okay, for sure. Yeah, and I'll just let people know that you've been listening to The Shift. I'm your host, Doug McKenty, and you can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. Uh, you can also like me, my personal page, uh, Doug McKinty on Facebook. And I've been moving all of my stuff. YouTube is now starting to censor a little bit too much. So I'm moving all of my stuff onto uh, Odyssey and I'm on Rockfin under the shift with Doug McKinty. You can find me there also uh, on Twitter at D McKinty. So thanks everybody for listening. And thank you so much, Sophie, for coming on. I really love this perspective that you have on, on mythology and the evolution of mythology. I think this is where the I think this is where the rubber hits the road myself. I mean, this is where we can really make the kind of changes that need to be that need to be made to change the culture in a good way so that, um, so that, you know, we can make the actual transition that needs to happen here. I think that when, I mean, people are talking about other ways, political movements, um, I mean, even psychology to a certain extent or whatever, it's like, uh, we, we need to approach this from a mythological place and we need to change the culture at this mythological level and we need to make this transition here. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing and, and bringing attention uh, to this aspect of, of making the cultural change and shifting the consciousness in this, in this good way for, for the people. And thanks for coming on. Thank you so much. It has been an absolute pleasure. Very good.
Thank you. Take care. Well, all right, ladies and gentlemen, that was my conversation with Sophie Strand. I've got to say this one is uh, getting close to the top of my list. This is a conversation I've been wanting to have for a really, really long time. And it is uh, it was just such a pleasure to have a conversation with this young thinker who, to my mind, is uh, really on to... Uh, something with this conversation about mythology and how it works. I, I think this is where the rubber hits the road in terms of what we're dealing with in modern society right now. When people discuss, uh, oh, we've got all these problems, you know, our civilization is destroying the planet, we've got these environmental problems, we've got these issues that are going on, uh, people are unhappy, we've got these chronic health issues, uh, you know, so many things seem to be going wrong. My God, <laughs> right? Uh, and the solutions that people come up with, they always tend to be solutions uh, that are within the the current paradigm, within the current current patriarchal archetype, if you will. And uh, it's like I think it was Buckminster Fuller who said, uh, if you keep if you use the same system that's gotten you into the problem in the first place, then you're just going to be uh, repeating the cycle. You're never going to find the solution. You have to find something completely different. And so we need to break away from these patriarchal archetypes. This dominant mythology that our culture operates under is never going to get us to a place where we can integrate with the planet, with the, with the Mother Earth. We need to uh, break away completely from this way of thinking. And we've 95% of the people on the planet have now been colonized. Uh, the empire has spread. Uh, only 5% uh, from my understanding, are now indigenous. Uh, and these are the people that we need to learn from, right, <laughs> as far as I'm concerned. And then we have to really start uh, looking at this uh, archetypically and psychologically and how we can change ourselves so that our way of thinking, uh, our epistemology, our way of understanding the world around us uh, starts to conform with the state of nature and not with this quote-unquote civilization that the empire has built around us and then indoctrinated us with this way of thinking, this patriarchal way of thinking uh, that basically uh, separates us from nature and pretends as if we as human beings have transcended nature and are now somehow above uh, above these natural processes. This has caused uh, an outrageous imbalance, uh, and it's going to lead to further and further problems until we shift this. And so the work that Sophie is doing is really starting to address this on this mythological level. And I wanted to mention something that is really frustrating for me, uh, which is that we hear this term patriarchy and fighting the patriarchy and political discourse all the time, and it seems like it has been simplified to this point where it's just uh, men you know, controlling the hierarchy. And men are at the top of the hierarchy. And if only we could get more women at the top of the hierarchy, then that would solve the problem. It's it's not, it doesn't even begin to scratch the surface of what the term patriarchy actually means. Uh, and it was great to have this conversation with Sophie because we were able to really dive into what patriarchy really is. It is a psychological archetype. It's been going on mythologically for five, six, seven thousand years. This isn't just about people with penises dominating uh, the civilization. It's about the psychological archetypes that create the civilization in the first place, that then create these hierarchies. Uh, we talked a lot about how then the people at the top 
uh, are initiated with the knowledge and the rest of us, the working class, the plebeians, uh, we only get the knowledge and access to the knowledge through them. And this is a, a central characteristic of patriarchal culture. Uh, and you'll see it over and over again in the religions where, uh, you know, the priest class has access to the truth and we can only access the truth or the Godhead through the priest class. Uh, we don't have that connection ourselves. Um, and then with Sophie, I had the, well, probably one of the most enjoyable conversations I've had uh, about scientism and science. Uh, we spoke about that at length, and I hope that uh, those of you who are listening to this really paid attention, um, because that conversation was so crucial, I think, to even understanding what's been going on for the last year and a half with COVID, but what's been just been going on in general, where again, now we have the, the scientist class uh, that has access to the truth, and the rest of us aren't connected to that knowledge, that expert consensus uh, that they claim exists, which really doesn't. Um, Sophie mentioned how you know science is a process. We discussed that real science requires humility, uh, but what we're getting fed by the corporate government narrative, by the patriarchal narrative, right, is uh, is that the scientist knows the truth. We are the plebeian class. We don't have access to the truth except for through them. So we just have to do what they say, and we don't get to make the choices for ourselves. Uh, and these are all, you know, I mean, this is where it, what it boils down to. Patriarchal mythologies have always just been excuses for uh, controlling behavior. I mean, in, in psychology, it's classic sociopathic behavior, right? The, a certain class of people or a type of person wants to control you, so they claim to have access to some kind of truth that you don't have access to. It's a, a classic technique used by cult leaders, right? Narcissistic groups. I mean, we can go on and on about the psychology of this, and now we're seeing it uh, very clearly within our own culture through this scientism movement, which is not, uh, of course, real science, um, but, uh, but is the excuse that they use to control us, not allow us to make uh, decisions for ourselves, because we don't have access according to them, uh, to the knowledge. Now, um, as we discussed, you know, if you're, if you're shifting, when you're making the shift from patriarchy to this other way of thinking, then everybody's individuality is respected, and their personal spirit path is respected. Uh, I found in my, in my own experience that uh, a lot of indigenous people are really offended uh, when they're approached by a colonized person who even subconsciously, even without knowing it, will constantly be kind of putting them down because they're looking for some kind of objective truth. And it's just considered rude to be objectified, which it is. <laughs> it is rude to be objectified uh, without having your subjective experience being, uh, being appreciated and being respected and being heard. Uh, in psychology, again, you know, being heard, being, being respected uh, is an important aspect of, of participating in a healthy emotional relationship. So uh, that was a great aspect of the conversation that I that I really enjoyed. Um, another thing that we kind of started to get into is this idea of mythology as evolving. Uh, another characteristic of patriarchal mythologies is that, again, this claim that the mythology is true, it's set in stone, it's the word of God, it doesn't evolve. You know, in uh, 
uh, goddess-based or, or indigenous thought as I've experienced it in my personal path, um, there's uh, not, not at all this feeling that, that everything has to be done in a certain particular right or correct way, but that it's like your personal experience, you bring your personal uh, understandings and your feelings to uh, the ceremony or, or to the path or to the, to the form if you're doing uh, Tai Chi or, or yoga. Uh, and it's influencing your own energetic body. It's, there's not an authority that tells you what to do, and there's not an objective truth that you have to conform to. Um, and this is the transition. This is the shift that we, I think, need to make uh, culturally, personally, individually, if we are going to learn uh, to live once again in harmony with the state of nature, if we're really concerned with uh, overcoming patriarchy, uh, overcoming these oppressive systems. I, I uh, describe sometimes patriarchal mythologies as uh, psychological warfare, methodologies of control for the upper classes to uh, control the lower classes, right? To, to entrain us uh, into these patterns of uh, submission to the authority figures. Um, and uh, and goddess-based mythologies or spirit paths um, do help us to reconnect with our own spiritual selves, make choices for ourselves. In psychology, this is called adulting. <laughs> um, and we need to uh, grow up as people. We are not children of Big Brother, right? We are adult human beings, and we need to learn how to respect each other's personal, individual spirit paths, once again, if we're going to find our way out of this mess. Um, some of the concepts I wanted to get into, because I don't think we discussed this specifically in the conversation, but we were kind of dancing around it. And in uh, in ancient Greece, there were these two concepts. One is bios and one is techne. Uh, and as we're getting deeper and deeper towards this great reset, uh, clearly driven by uh, the ideas of technocracy uh, and transhumanism, uh, where there is a worship of the machine. Like, uh, again, in patriarchal mythologies, you have the idea of original sin, that human beings aren't good enough, that we're constantly in this state of, uh, of not being good enough for our, for our masters, working to be better all the time, never satisfied uh, with what's actually happening to us in the moment. Uh, and, and so this translates into not being satisfied with our bodies, with our biological systems, um, you know, we discussed a little bit how uh, in these mythologies of oppression, uh, there's a lot of pain inflicted. Guilt and shame are the tools used to keep us down until, uh, until we've um, actually taken these into ourselves and we guilt and shame ourselves. We're constantly putting ourselves down uh, so that we don't question the authority. So we never rise up uh, against the authority. It's a, it's a psychological archetype of oppression. Uh, and to turn this around, uh, we need to start to honor the biological systems, the bios, the in internal knowledge, the wisdom that's held inside of our biological selves. And this touches on to uh, some of my experiences with Tai Chi or the internal alchemy system, which every uh, other culture, if you haven't been from a, if you haven't been colonized, 
uh, rooted in uh, every other culture that I've experienced has been the knowledge of the internal energy system uh, and how to cultivate more uh, of this internal energy system so that you actually can broaden your awareness, be stronger, be healthier, and be connected. This is how biological systems work as opposed to techne, which is the worship of the machine, right? God is in the machine is that Latin phrase that we continually uh, that has been said over and over again, and certainly as we move towards technocracy and, of course, transhumanism, this is exactly what they're saying, that the machine transcends our biological selves. Uh, so, you know, we're entering into a phase of, it uh, feels like a, almost a spiritual war, and I hate to describe it as such. I feel like those of us uh, connected to the bios, if you will, uh, I mean, I don't want to be in a war. I'm not fighting anyone, but these people keep pushing and pushing and pushing, trying to keep us down, trying to transform us uh, into more and more machine-like uh, individuals, if not completely uh, controllable through technology. Uh, and on the one end, they're learning how to control the humans. On the other end, they're building, you know, robot armies, essentially robot laborers, simply to replace BIOS altogether. Um, and trying to transcend life through the machine. This is the techne uh, concept that uh, they had in ancient Greece. And I think that we really need to shift the mythologies from those that, that uh, keep us down, keep us thinking that our, our bios, our biosphere, our organic bodies uh, are not good, not good enough uh, to... Um, Understanding that who we are as organic beings uh, are beautiful things. And so, uh, beautiful things that actually have and hold the knowledge already within us to live incredible lives, right? We don't need that authority uh, to tell us, to, to turn us into the machine, to make us part of the Borg, you know, to improve us, constantly thinking about improving us. Uh, in this way, we can de-stress uh, and we can start to really reconnect with who we are as individuals, as spiritual beings. And then, of course, uh, I loved what Sophie describes as composting, or she describes it as the mycelium. To really get into how mythology can evolve, rather than having this uh, hierarchical evolution where there are those at the top that impose their system of mythology onto the rest of us, we have this system where all these ideas can come up. Whatever's flowing through you as an artist, as a human being, uh, as a parent, right, as a teacher, whatever's flowing through you and, and you're doing what you, the work that you love and you're passionate about, it all gets thrown into the compost heap. And then it heats up and it churns and all of these different ideas. And that's what grows the collective consciousness. That's how new mythology is, is born. I mean, I think uh, that in this day and age, we have uh, academic class, uh, the scientismists, the scientific class, uh, and they create um, cultural evolution. And then it gets imposed upon us uh, through essentially through propaganda in the modern day, uh, propaganda, psychological warfare being the, the modern version of mythology uh, imposed by a patriarchal class 2,000 years ago, right? Uh, and we are not evolving 
mythologies anymore. So it is through this process of, of breaking away from the feelings that truth is set in stone and has to be imposed on everyone to having respect for individual experience and understanding that the mythology can evolve via this concept of mycelium into the collective consciousness to literally grow the mythologies of the future based on, uh, based on freedom and not based on a hierarchical structure, this is the shift that, that we need to make. I truly believe this. Uh, this is the shift from the patriarchy into the matriarchy, or if you don't like those terms, you know, from the dominator into the partnership cultures uh, that has to happen to reintegrate us into the Mother Earth and to allow us to live in harmony with the state of nature so we stop uh, just destroying the planet the way that we are. Because the people at the top of the patriarchal hierarchy, just as they don't care about our bios, they also don't care about the Mother Earth and the biosphere. So, you know, let's come to these realizations and let's have some of these conversations about how mythology evolves. So I, for one, am seriously looking forward to uh, seeing what Sophie Strand comes out with in the future. I'm looking forward to her book, The Flowering Wand. I'd love to have her back on uh, when that comes out, if not before, and help her pitch that. Um, I am excited to see what this young thinker is going to come up with in the future because I, I feel strongly that the work that she is doing uh, is is very important work and is hitting the nail on the head. I mean, again, you know, so much of the talk in the political sphere today about the patriarchy or, you know, that's coming out of identity politics or these are all still stuck in the old patriarchal mythology, the old patriarchal myth uh, epistemologies. You're not going to get out of the problem by using the same way of thinking that got us in this problem in the first place. And, and uh, so I think that just seeing the depth of thinking and understanding that Sophie is presenting here about how mythology works and where it can go in the future, uh, so super important. So I hope everybody checks out The Flowering Wand when she comes out with it. And uh, that should be sometime next year, hopefully early next year. Uh, and you can also, the best place to find her is actually to look up Sophie Strand on Facebook, where she's been kind of giving us little teasers of some of her essays before she publishes the book. Uh, and she is also on Instagram at Cosmogony. Uh, so look for her there under that one. So I hope you enjoyed this as uh, much as I did. Again, I mean, this, the, these concepts about mythological transformation, this shift, I mean, this is the impetus behind why I do this program. Uh, and I was really happy to have Sophie on so that we could have these, this conversation specifically about mythology uh, as an archetype and its evolution. I think this is the shift that we need to make as people uh, if we're going to change the world for the better, if we're going to evade uh, the, the rise of the machines uh, that seems to be coming our way if people don't start to, to learn how to think differently and tell the, the people at the top of the hierarchy, thanks, but no thanks, we're going to do something else. So uh, I'll just let you all know that uh, I have been your host. My name is Doug McKenty. You've been listening to The Shift. You can uh, Find out more about The Shift by going to www.theshiftnow.com, uh, Doug McKenty on Facebook, or The Shift with Doug McKenty pretty much on any of your favorite social media sites or your podcast hosting sites. You should be able to find me. I'm, I'm trying to be spread out all over the place uh, and posting where I can. Uh, and uh, please remember to subscribe, like, and share uh, if you're listening, because I am relying on you to distribute this podcast. So thanks for listening to this, and we will catch you again on the flip side. Um, my next interview is going to be with blogger Tessa Lena uh, of 
And uh, so that'll be coming out uh, sometime shortly, beginning of next week. Hopefully, definitely by the end of next week, I'll have it out. So stay tuned for that one. Thanks again for checking this out. And uh, we'll talk to you very, very soon. Take care. Mm -hmm.